This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel. I'm Lale Arakoglu. And today, I'm taking us to one of my favorite places in the world, and somewhere that I've spoken about on this podcast before. It's wild. It's remote. With spectacular landscapes and some of the world's most unpredictable weather. It's Patagonia, home to glaciers and the Andes, deserts and rainforests, almost all of which has been protected by the creation of national parks in huge areas of Chile and Argentina. If you buy a Picasso and you hang it in your living room, you and your family can enjoy it. But if you take that same Picasso and you donate it to MoMA or any place really around the world, millions of people will see that every year and be informed by it, entertained by it. Doug and I decided that whatever land we bought, we would return it to the country in the form of a new national park for exactly that reason. That's how Chris Tompkins, an American conservationist who is the subject of a new National Geographic documentary, describes her philosophy when it comes to restoring the wild beauty of Patagonia and beyond. For three decades, her foundation, Tompkins Conservation, has been protecting and creating nearly 15 million acres of parkland. Last year, I saw some of this work firsthand when I went to part of northern Patagonia in Chile only 10 kilometres from the Argentine border. My destination? A village that's known for its adventure tourism, hiking and whitewater rafting. Here's a recorded clip of my own journey to and across a section of this giant region, a story that we covered in our show last fall. I got on a domestic flight to a small city called Portamont, which is perhaps best known for a volcano that erupted several years ago, and I can't really tell you much else. I got on a 10-seater propeller plane, which flew me to the tiny village of Chaiten. And from there, a very generous and kind older couple who didn't speak a lick of English and I didn't speak a lick of Spanish drove me for three hours through gorges and past glaciers and into the mountains to my final destination, outside of the village of Futulafu.
On my first morning waking up in the Andes, the owner of the lodge that I was staying at, Marcelo, decided to take me out for a hike with him and his two dogs, Baloo and Poncho. It was misty, it was drizzly, I had my rain jacket zipped up and my hiking boots on. And the only sound other than the dogs sniffing in the grass was the sound of the mud squelching beneath our hiking boots. We talked about everything, from Pearl Jam to psychedelic mushrooms to Tokyo, to why the colour of the river in Futulafu was such a brilliant, iridescent blue. It was one of the best days I've ever had. It was one of the best travel experiences I've ever had. Sometimes you can spot some condors over there. We didn't see any condors, but I spotted myriad birds and even an otter searching for its dinner along the coast. And on that journey, two names kept coming up in conversations I had with people who call Patagonia home, Chris and her husband, Doug Tompkins. So when I discovered that there's a new documentary film about their work, asking Chris to be a guest felt like a way to travel back to that beautiful place. It's funny, when I was in Patagonia, which is a line I love to trot out at a bar. (laughs) When I was in Patagonia. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what a treat to get to say that. I heard both of your names constantly. Oh, you did? Within, I got a lift from the airport in Portamont to take me to like another small plane. And even the woman driving me, when she asked me why I was there and I said I was there for a story, she immediately was like, oh, well, you have to read about the Tompkins. And so before we get into all the work you've done to protect that land... I'd actually love to start by talking about the time when you were just exploring and discovering it and what wild beauty you saw. I think my first trip to to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. And even though I grew up in a rural area and never had really had a seriously urban life, I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. For a Western modern mind, the scale and the emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. The air was very striking to me in that it was so clean. Yeah. It reminds some ancient part of you what life was like for 99.9% of human life on this earth. And so I think you you begin to relax. You begin to imagine yourself in another lifetime or in another life. That's what happened to me anyway. Chris, who was always interested in the outdoors, was running the clothing company Patagonia at the time when she met Doug. The feature-length film, Wild Life, captures the moment in 1993 when she decided to move to Chile. Doug would call me from time to time. And one night I said, well, I'm going to go to Paris to work out at Paris office. And he goes, great, I'll see you over there. And true to his form, he's in Paris. We go out to dinner, his favorite restaurant in Paris. And we're walking around, walking all around Paris. He said, come see me in Chile. I said, no, absolutely not. You're a world-famous sandbagger. And he stopped, and 
looked down at, at his feet and then looked back up, back up at me and said, I will never let anything happen to you. It was one of those moments that you see somebody transform even in their own mind. I mean, much later he said, he knew exactly, that was it, and so did I. I thought to myself, that's the man I'm supposed to marry. But it's, it was crazy, really crazy. I was engaged to another person. So I ended up leaving that fiance. Then I went down to Chile to visit with Doug for 10 days and I stayed five weeks. It was chemistry. When um, you get hit by lightning. I'm going to leave my role as CEO and we are currently looking for someone to replace me. My hope is to have someone in place by October, train them, have them shadow me day to day for three months, and then January 1st, I bug out and uh, likely go to Chile, which is where I'm thinking that my home will be. I mean, I blew up my whole, <laughs> it was scandalous. I just blew up my personal life. But I was right. It turned out to be the great thing. And it was a big leap of faith. I mean, it was, could easily have gone either way. This was insane, what we were doing. The documentary is at its heart. It's a love story, both for that part of the world, but also for you and Doug. How did the two of you fall in love with that land together? Well, Doug really fell in love with the Patagonian region on either side of the border with climbing in 1968. And Doug had already bought one piece of property when I, once I retired and moved to Chile. And I don't think we knew exactly what we were going to do with these territories at first. And then we realized these these should be national parks. And that's when we really started meeting with governments and and people throughout the country talking about the possibility of protecting the jewels of this country in that form so all are welcome and that every hectare of these territories belongs to every citizen. What was that process like in terms of working with these governments and and I guess like creating that accessibility? Well, it's a process because when we, in the early years, in the early 90s, of course, there was great suspicion about what we were doing. We were buying up large tracts of forests and not cutting them down. And that was highly suspicious, uh, irregular. So it was kind of rough at the beginning. Do you think part of it was to do with the fact that it was you were two non-Chileans coming in and with this radical idea... When I look back 25 years, 28 years, and I see the tremendous suspiciousness surrounding us, we were known as the couple who cut Chile in half. Um, people thought we were looking to create a new Jewish state, even though we were raised as Anglicans and all these outrageous things said about it. Today, when I look at it, I think things like that, the country 
was new to the country. And I think these things would happen anywhere, frankly. There's always a first. And the first is usually the one who has to tackle these suspicions and 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 kind of ride it out because I think that culture is so strong that when as it begins to evolve, even in a small direction, you have to be prepared for a reaction that won't always be positive. And we, boy, did we learn that with great humility, honestly. Um, and now everybody takes our work for granted. And um, what people really forget, oftentimes, Tompkins Conservation is the Doug and Chris show. There are hundreds of Chileans who worked on the Chilean national parks and Argentines on the other side of the border. So these parks were never just created by Doug and Chris. After the break, how Chris and her team have been releasing jaguars back into the wild after a 70-year absence. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
Condé Nast traveller writer Alex Postman, who I think you maybe crossed paths with when she was reporting this story, um, wrote a feature for us last year about rewilding in Argentina. And she opens with this beautiful description of seeing a very faint, but very much there, paw print of a jaguar in the earth. Yes, well, you know, I'm very spoiled in this regard because (laughs) (laughs) I get out there quite a bit. I mean, it brings tears to your eyes. The first time you see jaguars out free after 70 years gone missing, they can be the small mammals. I get to see a lot of it, and it's something you never take for granted because they're free, but you're always vigilant. Did we really take care of the reasons they went extinct in the first place? So the work we have come to learn is actually never over. And, um, you know, it's emotional when you're talking about rewilding and local communities. Top predators, such as the jaguar, are not easy to bring back socially, generally. In Corrientes, Argentina, they couldn't wait for the jaguars to come back because those cats represent the way they see themselves, the Correntino, the the valiance of of a Quarantino. So in that way, you have the whole province protecting them now, when in fact that was utterly missing when they'd gone extinct in the first place. So you, you're watching yourselves and everything around you evolve as these species come back. In the documentary, there's wonderful footage of this elusive big cat, the largest in the Americas. There was so much more to do than just protect the land. You can't call any of these places restored or healthy until everybody's back. Chris helped with the reintroductions of over a dozen species at this point, uh, ultimately including the jaguar, which nobody's ever done before. It was Doug's idea to do whatever we could to bring jaguars back. The jaguar is emblematic. It's at the top of the food chain there. It was one of his dreams. So we have nine to release. And that's assuming that both the cubs, who are now both females, (laughs) have two cubs, maybe, maybe one. Holy shit. When you walk through these parks now and on this land, what difference do you see now compared to before the rewilding efforts when it comes to these ecosystems being rebuilt and reintroduced? Well, let me start with the description of our reaction as people who are working on the ground. In both Chile and Argentina, you actually have to pay attention now. Where are you? What are you listening to? Are you going out in a sector where maybe you should retrace your steps? In terms of the landscape itself, certain grasslands are starting to 
be modified, especially in the Patagonian grasslands where pumas are back now in, in, in really healthy numbers. That is the extraordinary nature of rewilding um, species who are at the top of the triangle. Who It's like the wolves in Yellowstone. There's nothing in Yellowstone that behaves the way it did before the wolves came back. And that's how I feel. A, a good example of this, around the Ibera wetlands, which is roughly 2 million acres, there are 10 communities, communities that have been largely forgotten even by the provincial government. It's, it was a... A territory in the in the province that nobody really had mapped. Nobody really understood what was out there. It's flat. It's just water. That has completely changed today. Every one of those communities has economic activities that are born out of Ibera, jobs and all sorts of things, and they have the jaguars back, and they have giant anteaters, and they have these points of pride that they needed and wanted to get back, and they're back. Do you think these rewilded areas can ever feel whole again, or do you think they've experienced so much loss to their ecosystems, even as they, these animals and this nature returns? Do you think it, it can feel complete? Oh, I think yes. But in some areas, even down in the Patagonia grasslands, where you, where you have these arid conditions, and in some areas, I wonder, even with the livestock taken off, a lot of care being put into it, I know that there will be some areas that probably don't come back to their original richness and diversity. That said, maybe even the majority of it will of course, they're, they're influenced by this, these 200 years that they've gone through with pretty rapacious use and extractive economies. But yes, as they say, mother bats last. <laughs> I love that. I love that phrase. Terrifying phrase. Hopeful phrase. Yeah. <laughs> it's both hopeful and terrifying. Yeah. Um, and also quite, quite a good ego reset, I yeah. think. Indeed. Coming up, how Chris kept going after insurmountable loss and what she still hopes to achieve. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. 
but that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. This was an amputation for me. It wasn't just a loss. In 2015, Doug Tompkins died unexpectedly of hypothermia after his kayak capsized while he was crossing Lago General Carrera in southern Chile. After it being the two of you, how did you figure out to carry on and kind of in short, how did you keep going? I certainly was asking myself that question right after he died. And I struggled I knew I could survive it. I just wasn't sure that it was a life that I was interested in. And then, for a few reasons, I, I first of all, said, sit up, sit upright. <laughs> um, we have to finish this stuff. We have families. We have loved ones. We have, what am I thinking? And the minute... I made that decision not to set aside grief, but wrap yourself up in it in a way that it's not choking you to death, which it was. And then I just kicked in probably a lot of my business years. (laughs) Everything was so clear to me. It was very, very black and white. We are going to the end and do it all. What was, you know, you said, I have to finish this. What was finishing it? In our case, at that point, we had a lot of parks in Chile and in in Argentina, which we'd been working on, and I wanted them to be donated as fast as possible, get them finished and get them donated back to the countries. So in, in the case of Chile, we put together, I think it's still the largest donation in history, donating the last million acres we had in the country and working very closely with the national government to add in 9 million additional acres from the government. And we, at one signing, we created five new national parks for Chile and enlarged three others. And at the same time, well, a little earlier, on the Argentine side, we worked with the standing government to do the same thing in, in, in Argentina. What do you think, especially in the last eight years, the wilderness has, has given you, just on a personal level? It has accompanied me in loss, not just of Doug, but in many things. And I feel best when I feel really small. And the only way I can feel really tiny and part of something much greater than myself is when I'm out in nature. It doesn't have to be so far out. It doesn't have to be down in Patagonia. But then I understand my place in the order of things and struggling with whatever it is, if you make yourself small, at least the way I see it, I find contentment and almost joy, I would say, 
and being a part of something that its heart is so beautiful and so powerful. And that, for me, the, my cathedral is in nature. When we think about the local communities whom we've been neighbors to over the last 30 years, um, I think it's always important to remind ourselves, but any conversation about conservation has to begin with the people who have been there all along, the local communities. And Doug always called it consulting the geniuses of the place. And he was very serious about that. And in the film, you'll see that a lot of, most of our wildlife work uh, teams are all local people. And the reason for that is they know how to track pumas. They know how to work with the nearly extinct Waymul deer. There are all these people locally that have knowledge Doug always, he is, he was the most straightforward person in the world. But the, the conversations have always been direct and honest and from our side, completely open. And they do, those conversations do influence our thinking. I'm going to do this until I physically, mentally, you have to put me in the in the ground. Um, but I will say that it is a kind of legacy point for for me for Tompkins Conservation because when Doug died and coming out of the business world, immediately I started a very serious succession plan because with only one of us left, I had to decide what what is the value here. I mean, this is a revolution, and we want to be on the front lines of this revolution. Patagonia has long captured the imaginations of writers and adventurers, and I was no different. Its landscape left me breathless from the first morning I woke up there. Yes, because of its beauty, but even more so because of its exquisite emptiness. Wildlife, chronicling the highs and lows of Chris Tompkins' journey, is made by National Geographic. Next week, I talk to actor Gabrielle Union about taking her extended family and many friends on a trip to Zanzibar, Ghana, Namibia and South Africa in honour of her 50th birthday as part of a new docuseries on BET+. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Kuroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. 
See you next week. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.